0: Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Father Greg Boyle, a Jesuit priest and native Angelino. From 1986 to 1992, Father Boyle served as pastor of Dolores Mission Church in Boyle Heights, then the poorest Catholic parish in Los Angeles, in a neighborhood with the most gang activity in the city. In 1988, Father Boyle, along with parish and community members, started what would become Homeboy Industries, Homeboy employs and trains former gang members in a range of social enterprises and provides critical services to thousands of men and women who walk through its doors every year. Father Boyle is the author of the 2010 New York Times bestseller, Tattoos on the Heart, 2017's Barking to the Choir, and 2021's The Whole Language. Father Greg, welcome to Messy Jesus Business.
1: It's good to be with you.
0: I'm delighted to have a conversation as a former Jesuit volunteer who served in California in the early 2000s and as a Franciscan sister. And you know, just uh, uh, trying to be a faithful Catholic here, I've been following you and your work for a good while and appreciate all that you're doing to to accompany gang members in Los Angeles, and to really witness and proclaim the truth of their goodness to the wider church and society. I am so grateful for all you do. And I'm wondering, how did you come to know your vocation as a Jesuit who works with members of gangs in Los Angeles?
1: Well, I never set out to do anything, you know. I was educated by the Jesuits, so I felt drawn by the Jesuits. I, I thought they were hilarious and prophetic, and that was enough for me to have what they're having. So that's as simple as it as it gets. Mm-hmm. It's funny, later on in my life, I, I kind of discovered that I think the authentic measure of discipleship is joy and fearlessness. And that was my experience of them back in the Early seventies, mm. late sixties, early seventies. I was so drawn to them because I thought they, uh, they're the real deal. They're they're living as though the truth were true. They, they these are folks who know how to put first things recognizably first. So that was fifty one years ago. You know the reasons you enter aren't always the reasons you stay. Yeah,
0: I, you're but, telling me.
1: <laughs> yeah, it refines itself and it deepens itself. And so, you know, that certainly has happened to me over all these years. Mm. Uh, You know, obviously I never felt like, I'm going to enter because I want to work with gang members. I entered in 72, I was ordained in 84. I went to Bolivia. And then I was pastor from 86 to 92. So it was in 88, you know, I was burying kids. Mm -hmm. I started to have all these funerals. Well, then it became clear that, We should probably be doing something Mm. about this reality. So that's kind of how it evolved.
0: So I'm impressed with your fidelity. You say the reason you became a Jesuit isn't the reason you stayed. Maybe the reason why you started doing the work of serving members of gangs isn't the reason you stay doing it. What causes you to persist and to have the grit?
1: I don't know if I have grit. But I I wouldn't trade my life for anybody's. You kind of stay anchored in gratitude and and try to delight in the person in front of you. And you try to take seriously what Jesus took seriously, which is inclusion and nonviolence and unconditional loving kindness and compassionate acceptance. And you just try to cherish with every breath you take. You don't try to get ahead of yourself. I mean, you try to love being loving. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to do. I mean... (laughs) Cherishing people is not hard. Mm. Remembering to cherish people is really difficult mm. because we always get sucked back into our own self-absorption and our own self-assertion. Mm. The thing that kind of guarantees sadness is clinging.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And self-absorption is a kind of clinging. It's a clinging to what do I need right now? and what am I worried about? Will this happen? Will that not happen? All, all these things. That the answer, of course, is to find out that loving is your home. Mm. Once you know that, you're never homesick again. But this is a lifelong thing. You have to, you have to keep at it. Yeah. But I gave up a long, long time ago trying to save, fix, or rescue people. Right. So you just try to do what you can in any given moment. But, you know, it's overwhelming, especially here like today. It's my first day back in a long time, and it, it's just packed.
0: I think what you're naming there is something that I struggle as another religious is this constant pull of, oh, there's more I can do. There's more people I can be with. There's more ways I can serve and help. And at the same time, we're called to be grounded in our contemplative practices. And that requires, well, a certain amount of solitude and discipline and requires us to sort of pull away And to say, yeah, I can't be everything to everybody. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to have a practice. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: you have to work at it. And be, you know, as you say, faithful to it. It's hard to do. But you also you have to kind of roll up your sleeves. You know, you have to kind of dive in. But I don't think it's either or. And the other thing is, you never make any kind of decision that's once and for all. I I have decided to be loving, or I've decided I want to see Jesus and be Jesus, or whatever the decision is, however you formulate that. None of it is once and for all. But it's also not you meditate in the morning and then you hit the day running and you're good to go. Well, that doesn't work either. I mean, because you have to kind of connect it to your breathing. So homies here who are in recovery will say, you know, one day at a time, which everybody says, mm-hmm. that's too long a time. Mm. That's why I say here always, it's one breath at a time. And you cherish with every breath.
0: Yeah, the cherishing, the loving, being in the holy moment, and sort of this this constant surrender and allowing our life to unfold and not even be attached to our plans or our ideas of like, well, this is who I am. This is what I'm about.
1: Well, you're always trying to um, think as Jesus sees. Mm. And how does God see these men and women? It's really hard. Obviously, they're going to try your patience Mm. because what they have to carry is huge. There's a lot of mental health issues that are quite pressing. I just had a young woman who I had to say, look, I'm about to go on a Zoom. So I called another staff member in Mm -hmm. and and it was really difficult. And part of it is she has, you know, huge issues. And so part of the idea is we hope that with a combination of staying in recovery, not self-medicating, doing therapy. Also, we have a psychiatrist here who can probably help her with some meds that will lift her boat a little bit Mm -hmm. so she doesn't take water. So it's complicated. There are kind of three buckets of people here. There's the despondent person, but at least they've walked into our place. Mm. That's the largest bucket. The other bucket is the traumatized, and a great many people are traumatized, damaged and wounded. And then the third bucket that's smaller is the mental health bucket. With the despondent and the traumatized, cherishing goes a long way. And it works, too, with the mentally ill But you really need those other component parts with them, otherwise it's too complex. Mm. But in the end, you want to create a culture that welcomes people, that creates a place that's safe so that they can feel seen, Mm -hmm. and then they can be cherished.
0: And as we cherish people, as we aim to love them the way God loves them and see them the way God sees them, it requires a lot of detachment from outcomes. I mean, I know I struggle sometimes with that in my own ministry of like, well, this is the way I think it should go. (laughs) So what have you learned over the years about how to surrender and and to be with?
1: Yeah, I think part of the thing is if it's about success or outcomes or even making a difference at the margins, then it's about you and it can't be about you.
2: Mm.
1: It's counterintuitive. You don't go to the margins to make a difference. You go to the margins so that the folks there make you different, mm-hmm. alter your heart. So you don't go to the margins to reach people. You go to the mm-hmm. margins so that you're reached by people. Yeah. And that's really just a completely different concept. That's kind of a the elemental notion about burnout. So sometimes people think when they're burning out, they go, Oh, it must be because I'm just too compassionate. I go, well, no, with all due respect, it's because you've allowed it to become about you. Mm -hmm. It can't be about you. Along with that is you burn out if it's about success. If it's about how many people have you fixed or saved or rescued. Mm -hmm. Well that can't be either. So somehow you have to be able to Be freed from all those things, you know. Somehow allow your heart to be altered. And then you're in the present moment. You're not worried about evidence-based outcomes, which most all nonprofits are worried about. But you have to kind of let go of that. Then you stop doing the thing that works and you do the thing that helps. Mm. Not everything that works helps. But everything that helps works. Mm. And that's it's important to kind of Think about what are you doing and what is your stance at the margins? You know, if you're there to be reached by people, then it's exquisitely mutual. And then everybody inhabits their own dignity and nobility. Otherwise, it's I uh, impart something on you. You know, it's funny. I, I was just in Minnesota. I just got in yesterday. And people use this expression, all we need to do is love on them. Yeah, And I always go, huh. I, I think the problem with that expression is it's the thing that I do, and it's the thing that I impart, and it kind of suggests a place of superiority. I'm going to love on them. Mm -hmm. It's like Jesus with the rich young man. It says, looking at him, he loved him. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like he loved on him. (laughs) He just loved him, right? He just loved him you know, on the one hand, it's just language and who cares. But on the other hand, there's something to that. I don't think we're supposed to be loving on people, but just love people. Mm-hmm. And that's the law and the prophets.
0: Amen, right? I agree with you completely. I'm thinking about a situation I had yesterday. I was downtown Chicago at Union Station and I was going to grab a sandwich before I came home and someone asked me for a couple dollars and they said, could I have a couple dollars or five or so? <laughs> you know? I said, oh yeah, well, here's a couple and I need a little bit for my own sandwich if you don't mind. So <laughs> now this person, before they even approached me, I noticed they were pacing back and forth and talking to themselves. Something was going on, but they were joyful. They were actually very joyful. So, this person sort of just lingered around me and then said, Do you mind if I follow you? <laughs>
1: uh, why, yes, I do.
0: <laughs> exactly. Because I basically did say to him, Yeah, and actually, I'm not comfortable with you following me. God bless you. I hope you stay well. What's your name? I'll say a prayer for you. Fortunately, from what I could tell, he didn't follow me. But, you know, it kind of freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> And yeah. I thought, oh, shoot, now this is messy. Did I love him the way Christ wants me to love? I don't know. Maybe I could have been a little more generous, a little more empathetic, a little more present. Right?
1: No. No. <laughs> I think you you handled that just fine. I mean, part of the thing is that we're all just doing the best we can. Right. I think there are two things that we need principles that we embrace here at Homeboy. Everyone is unshakably good. There's no exceptions. Yeah. And we belong to each other, no exceptions. Yes. Well, having said that, you still have to kind of be smart and safe. And I really do believe that we're in a, a mental health crisis that's we've never seen. I've never seen in, in my nearly 70 years of living. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. And, you know, part of it is exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, the political polarization, uh, social media, probably on some level. Mm -hmm. That's something that nobody had to deal with even 10 years ago, really. Yeah. So we're just in a different place. So you have to be careful and smart and and, uh, be clear. I think the most loving stance ever is clarity. Mm. We're dealing with that always here, you know, so somebody is off their meds, maybe smoking meth, Mm -hmm. you run the risk of this person triggering all the people who are stacked up in our waiting room right now. Yeah. So we don't want to do that. So you got to be clear. Hey, can I see outside? Yeah, I can't have you in here because you're screaming and And you help as best as you can. Mm -hmm. Even sometimes you have to call the cops because you want to keep this person safe and everybody who works here safe. That requires some clarity.
0: So there's a certain amount of risk-taking courage that's required in living the gospel this way. And yet, I think I'm hearing you say that it's not a recklessness or foolishness to the point where we're literally laying down our lives for the other. So we still have the healthy boundaries so that we can continue to be present to other people come our way.
1: Yeah, I think so. And you can only do what you can do. And Mother Teresa says, you know, we're not called to do great things, small things, great love. Mm-hmm. And so you try to kind of stay anchored in, in the smallness of things. We get paralyzed when we kind of go to the aerial view kind of thing. You know, what am I currently doing about mass incarceration? You go, well, okay. Do what you can do, one breath at a time, the person right in front of you, and you try to kind of do the best you can. Everybody's just doing the best they can.
0: Yeah.
1: It's tough because we get very judgmental and exacting and demanding.
0: We do, don't we? We were saying earlier that we're not going to have any sort of, what do you call it, mission-directed outcomes or...
1: Evidence-based outcomes.
0: There you go. Okay, so if if we call that success, I mean, I don't think success is in the Bible. So I always find that such a funny word when we as ministers start to talk about success. Yet some people... Like folks that have given you money and awards would probably say that you building up Homeboy Industries with your great team is the story of success. So I wonder, how do you do that discernment of We still need to make decisions and we need to think about how we can expand and grow and respond to the needs more effectively. You must still do things like strategic planning. How does that dance work of like, well, yeah, you have your foot in one world, the nonprofit leadership world, and you're a minister?
1: You know, you accept success. Success comes and and that's fine. You just don't want it to be your engine you don't want it to be the thing that drives what you do. Again, Mother Teresa, she says that we're not called to be successful, we're called to be faithful. So that's the idea. It's you're otherwise you're you're trying to work with the most likely to succeed and you don't want to be there either. You just want to be faithful to the approach that you've landed on and your way of proceeding that's probably born of all sorts of moments of insight and where you say oh yeah okay this is this is what we think we're doing and yeah it's good and let's stay faithful to it Uh uh-huh that's what it's about as opposed to let's try to have success because what will happen is you'll stop working with people at the margins Mm. and you'll start working with people who will give you more success Mm. That happens all the time. We're, we work with people who nobody else wants to work with. Yeah. So everything would change if we changed that. You know, if we said now we're going to work with people who are going to give us better results. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, <know?
0: laughs> you would be mission drifting away then. Yeah,
1: exactly. It would. It would be exactly that mission drift, and and you don't want to do that. You want to stay anchored in in a fidelity that says what saint ignatius calls affectionate awe Mm. with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless and the demonized and the disposable and everybody who's excluded we want to stand in awe at what they've had to carry rather than in judgment that's a kind of an intentionality that's important
0: i'm gonna change topics a little bit because i'd like to explore the value of storytelling Your books are full of stories from your lived experience. When I've heard you speak, you're a storyteller. That's one of the labels that I'm guessing others have put on you over the years. I don't know if it's an identity you claim. But clearly, you know something about narrative theology and the power of it. (laughs) And I'm wondering how, when it comes to increasing awareness of kinship and inviting others into the gospel way, when you're telling the stories, what role do emotions and joy and compassion and feelings play? What's the, the heart of that for you, the storytelling?
1: Well, I, I think if you're not telling stories, people aren't listening. Mm. And stories, because they're human... They're funny and they're moving. So what you want to do, like whenever you preach or when you give a talk or something, you want to make them laugh.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You want to make them cry. And you want to invite them to move beyond the mind they have. So those are the three things. But those are the three things of anything, you know, mm. good preaching, yeah. any kind of speaking. In the old days, I would tell these stories and they had a certain pattern. Because in those days, I was burying so many kids. Mm. You want the audience to kind of say, Oh, I I love this kid. This kid is interesting. Wow, I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't. Wow, he's funny. He's charming. He's smart. He's insightful. And then he's dead. And in the old days, I I don't do this so much anymore. But in the old days, I did it because, you know, these kids didn't matter. Mm. They didn't count. I mean, I, I... Buried 265, I think, Mm. people killed because of gang violence. I kept track because, in the early days anyway, they didn't matter. A life lost in Boyle Heights was not worth as much as a life lost in Westwood or something like that. I I don't tell stories like that so much. They used to be cautionary tales because I would preach that in detention facilities as a way to kind of on the one hand move people Mm -hmm. but also so that they could see things like their gang involvement kind of thing Yeah, but you're always trying to move your audience otherwise you give content every once in a while like even theological content Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you see your audience their eyes glaze over and then quick move to an image to a Mm -hmm. story to something so they can laugh Mm
0: -hmm. or
1: something like connects with them. But Jesus did the same thing. That's kind of what parables are about.
0: I tend to believe that stories invite people to a different type of consciousness than when they're hearing ideas or information. When they're hearing a true story that has a lot of emotion in it, then their compassionate side is awakened, and they somehow feel like they know the person and they're there with them. So, you— are doing the same thing when you tell all the stories is you're honoring the lives of the people that you get to know and the life that you're living so much of your work from my vantage here you're a bridge builder and you you go to the privileged parts of the church and you help increase the compassion for for gang members you help people to have the depth of awareness about what life is really like on the streets and why this ends up being people's lives and how we all can actually do something about it. In that bridge-building work, what have you discovered about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus?
1: Well, you know, I think that people are uh, unshakably good, and everybody has a longing. People Mm -hmm. are longing for Connection and kinship and union and exquisite mutuality. So, so people come here, like we have like 300 volunteers, and they always come here and they always say, What are we going to do here? And then I always tell them, No, what's going to happen to you here? You know, this is going to be a place where if you dive in and, and surrender to it, you will be altered by it. Like in the gospels, I always tell people, find the invitation. And and disregard and discard the indictment because mm. the indictment usually comes from human beings trying to put words in Jesus's mouth or God's mouth. So, like wrathful oh God or uh, all sorts of things that are just cuckoo bird, yeah, that we buy, and then people go, yeah, but it's in scripture, you know,
2: yeah, yeah, just
1: before Noah's ark, you know, God says this one line. He says. He's mad at people. Mm. And he says, I regret that I even made these people. Well, there it is in Scripture. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Nobody who knows the God of love thinks that that's a true articulation of who God is. Mm. The God who regrets that he ever made us. Crazy. That's just craziness. Yeah. And yet, you know, people go, well, it's in Scripture. So what am I supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to ignore it. <laughs> you're supposed
0: to learn but, where, how Scripture came to be, and <laughs> learn the yeah, historical it, context. It
1: just, it, you just have to presume. If Mirabai Starr, who I recommend, is a great mystic and writer mm-hmm. on mystics. And she says, once you know the God of love, you fire all the other gods. Mm-hmm. And so you have to read the Scripture in the same way Jesus did. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy mm-hmm. and Isaiah, and he comes right to a point And he doesn't quote further. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the original uh, text and you go, oh, he doesn't quote further because it's awfulness. It's the (laughs) wrath of God. It's it's God pissed off. Yeah. And and I'm going to presume that Jesus didn't quote the whole passage because he didn't believe it. Uh huh. Uh huh. That he really just believed the part that said, you know, you are my beloved. And, and I delight in you. you yeah. know.
0: So having a healthy image of God influences the way we are with ourselves, with each other.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's nothing more consequential than our notion of God.
0: Who God is for us, right? Yeah. What about church, though? Like, what is church? Does the image of what church is matter, too?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm a Catholic. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. And I will be till the day I die. But it's kind of the particular container. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like whatever one's favorite adult beverage might be. Say it's scotch. The bottle is important because it holds the scotch. But it's the scotch that's important. Mm. And so the church is the container. The marrow of the gospel is what it's about. But as soon as it becomes frightened and defensive, and it's we will defend the Catholic faith, I don't even know what that means. What what in the world could that even mean? I don't know what that means. You know, because it's either about the marrow of the gospel or it isn't. Mm -hmm. The Roman Catholic Church is my container, but what it contains is the, the marrow of the gospel. So Richard Rohr says that only the false self is offended by anything. And sometimes the the institutional church is offended by stuff, and you just go, well, maybe it's the same thing. Only the false church is offended by anything. Uh, I'm not offended by very much at all because, you know, the mark of authentic discipleship is joy and fearlessness. Mm. But you know you're off the rails a little bit if it's sad and frightened Mm -hmm. and defensive.
2: Mm-hmm. Then you
1: go. Maybe I'm offended because I really want the church to return to 1954, mm-hmm. and you go, "Yeah, that that doesn't have anything to do with the marrow of the gospel." Yeah, I never, I never say my Catholic faith. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I mean, I really don't.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure you I know, do either. That's funny. why I'm laughing. I relate so it's much. Funny, it's
1: funny Catholics say that, but yeah. I don't think people go, "My Lutheran faith." Yeah yeah I don't think they say that. I think they say the gospel, uh-huh. if it's not about the gospel, count me out
2: mm
1: because that's that's the scotch in the, yeah. <laughs> in, the in the green bottle right I mean, the, bottle, the bottle's nice, but it's just it holds yeah so i, I don't know I think that's I think we we got stuff backwards.
0: that's a good metaphor you know i I do um I do relate, especially during this time. Some people would say we're in a post-religious era, right? And it's, there's more and more secularization, and less people are uh, practicing a religion. So that kind of stirs up this defensiveness and, and sort of a protection of the institution. Like, oh, let's preserve our church buildings or this tradition or this place that matters so much to us. But that's not what the gospel's about, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, there's grief, there's there's sadness, there's a loss. Honor the loss, you know, and have a ritual and say goodbye. And then how do you welcome in what's new and what's becoming and what God is doing with you and with all of us? And be faithful to, to the fact that the gospel way is a way of journey. It's a pilgrimage, right? We're always going somewhere.
1: I mean, like Brian McLaren correctly says, everybody thinks the decision is, in terms of church, to stay compliantly
2: Mm.
1: or to leave defiantly. Yeah. And he says, no, stay defiantly. The church doesn't belong to the bishops. That's preposterous. Yeah. So stay defiantly. I think that's good. That's healthy. That's what we ought to be doing. That's how we purify what we do and and how we stay close to the marrow Mm. of the gospel Mm. and why we take seriously what Jesus takes seriously, Mm. what he took seriously. And so if you stay close to that, then, you know, you're not offended by all the weirdness that people get bent out of shape about. I go, oh, I don't care. Yeah, And it's also like religion above the gospel. Again, count me out. <laughs> if, it's not about, if it's not about the gospel, then we're not really serious. But if it's about maintaining institutions, you want to roll up your sleeves and you want to be able to, wow, these people, they follow Jesus because they're joyful yeah. and they're prophetic and they're fearless. And the, the world will Draw lines. These people want to erase them. Hmm. Hey, I'm with them. Yeah. But instead, what we're doing is we're trying to return to 1954, and that was a very good year because it was the year I was born. But I don't want to return to that year, <laughs> you know, where nuns wore wimples and <laughs> and clericalism was in overdrive. No. Yeah. We know what to do. It's just we have to pray to be more fearless.
0: And as you're more joyful, you're loving, you're fearless, and you're staying with it. You're staying with the people of God, you're staying with Jesus himself. What's your sense of how Jesus is staying with you?
1: Well, again, for for Jesus, it's about that you may be one,
2: Mm.
1: my joy yours, your joy complete. It's not about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I don't know. We we think that way because that's our human projection. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: If I was Jesus, I would want it to be all about me. And if I was God, I would want it to be all about me. But it's all total human projection. Oh, God is good. And oh, my God, God, you're the best. And God wanting to be praised. Mm -hmm i go well i don't know i think god is more self-effacing than we are mm. in that god i kind of says why are you looking at me yeah look at it either what's it? that you won a community of kinship go but instead we're kind of waving our hands and saying oh my god god you're the best mm-hmm. and i think god just rolls her eyes and says come on now <laughs> God's dream come true is not that more people believe in him. Mm. God's dream come true is not more people go, hallelujah, you're the best. God's dream come true is a community of cherished belonging. Where there is no us and them, there's just us. And that's what God hopes. But not because that's a hard thing to do, but because that's where the joy is. Mm. Can I ask you, where did you do Jesuit volunteer?
0: Oh, I did it in Sacramento. Well,
1: in Sacramento. So that was 2000?
0: Uh, oh, 4 oh, 05. I was there. I was at a place called Tubman House, Waking the Village. It's, it's kind of like Homeboy. It's grown so much. I don't even know how many things they have going on anymore. But in that day, it was just one house that had four young adults who were pregnant and were, or just had kids or, and they came from the streets and we would a- accompany them for 18 months. But now that's like f- three or four childcare centers and two art centers and a shelter. And, you know, it's
1: beautiful. It's interesting because 18 months, when we decided how long we wanted people to be here, mm. we said 18 months. And, you know, it was like one year is too short,
2: mm-hmm.
1: two years is too long. Yeah. So we said 18 months. But it was later we discovered that 18 months is the amount of time it takes for an infant to attach to the caregiver. So it it felt like a good amount of time that everything is attachment repair. How do you help heal people so that they can walk right into wholeness? And so it sounds like what you were engaged in really was relational wholeness, where people are able to inhabit their truth. Yeah. And then they can leave after 18 months.
0: Yes. And much like what you do, it's holistic, right? So it's not just, oh, we'll put a roof over your head and make sure you have food. But it's also like, let's help you have a job. Let's help you go to school. Let's make sure you're getting health care. What's going on with your court cases? And so when you see the whole person and you're honoring all that they are and all their needs, then I think it's transformative for everybody. I'm hoping one day I get to come and visit Homeboy. But I feel like I got to right now with this really sacred conversation with you, and I appreciate it so much. And I just wonder, as we wrap up, if you want to speak a little bit about messiness, that's what this podcast is about. This is Messy Jesus Business Podcast because we're interested in the messiness of living the gospel. And I think we've touched on a lot of it, but what have you discovered about how to navigate the messiness of gospel living for those that feel like the messiness is just too much sometimes?
1: Well, I don't it depends on how how anybody defines messiness, but I I think we've settled for piety and we should hold out for holiness.
2: Mm.
1: And holiness is really being whole and being well. And so none of us are well till all of us are well, which means it's messy. But when people aren't well, that doesn't touch their goodness. They're they're still unshakably good. We need help so that the blindfold will fall and we can see the truth of who we are, and find our true selves in loving. But we think that holiness is piety. And we go, oh, that guy is holy. Mm. Well, not always just pious. Loving people are healthy people, and healthy people are loving people.
2: Mm.
1: And loving, healthy people are holy people. So we, we think it's this big, elevated, altered, on a pedestal kind of thing, and it isn't. Huh. But we've kind of gone haywire on this because we think it's it's about perfection. And and when Jesus says that you may be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, well the, the Aramaic is not perfect, but it's whole. Uh. You know, that you may be whole. And so you have to navigate a lot of mess in order to find wholeness. But as long as we don't judge people or exclude them everybody's doing the best they can and we're all just trying to walk each other home to wholeness and holiness
0: it sounds really human to me yeah thank you so much father greg boyle for coming on message jesus business for sharing this time for your insights your experience for all your leadership in the church what can the listener of this podcast do to support homeboy industries and you and your work
1: Oh, I don't really have a pitch, but you can go to our website and you'll see all sorts of things at at homeboyindustries.org
0: There you go. <laughs> and I want to recommend that everyone reads your books. <laughs> so, thank you again, Father
1: Greg. Honor to be with you. Thank you.
0: Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamscans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.